dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. It is the day after our giant Remnant slash Dispatch meetup at the American Enterprise Institute last night. I think it was a really successful event. I'll talk more about that after I get rid of today's guest, if I can. Yeah, ever where was my invitation? <laughs> I didn't think you were going to come to Washington for it. No. Um, uh, you, longtime listeners of Glop already know who this person is. Um, uh, but uh, I, I have with me a dear friend, um, someone I've been podcasting with. I've been cheating on both National Review and The Dispatch podcasting with for, I don't know, like a decade. Um, we, we play well with others, but it, you, you have an open relationship with them. I guess that's right. You're poly. Yeah. I mean, I still, uh, let me just say your name. This is Rob Long, everybody. Everybody meet Rob Long. Rob Long is the, um, is the other punctuation mark with me. Um, amidst John Pedortz's monologues on the Glop podcast. <laughs> and uh, um, so this is what your voice sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah, it's kind of wild to be able to take a breath and then talk. Um, and uh, I've used this analogy a million times before, but it's, it's particularly fitting because uh, for remnant listeners who, for some bizarre reason, don't know, Rob was um, a producer of Cheers, a writer on Cheers, and um, and also an executive producer, eventually on Cheers. And um, one of my favorite little bits from Cheers was when they go to the bowling alley to play against Pete's Old Town Tavern, I think it was. And um, Norm gets up to go get a beer from the bar at the bowling alley. Yeah. And they hear him open the door and the entire crowd at the bar at the bowling alley yells, Norm! <laughs> and when he comes back, they're like, what do you, how do you know those guys? And he's like, I have a life, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I feel about when I do Glop. It's like, I'm welcome there, but it's like not my other, my other stuff. <laughs> that's, yeah, this is true. This is, this is where you're in the big seat. Um, so uh, let's start with the, the inspiration for having you on here was that... Uh, as you know, I'm a massive friend of labor. Yeah, of course. And me too, by the way. Yeah. And uh, um, the Hollywood writers have gone on strike. And so I believe that means you are on strike. Is that correct? I, ha as of midnight, um, I have been, I'm on strike. As of midnight, I've, I've refused to do any writing or work at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I'm on strike. We're, we're, I think we're, 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 we're affiliated with the Teamsters, I think. Uh-huh. Um, or maybe AFL-CIO. It's something, it's something inappropriate for a Hollywood writer to be associated with, but that's, that's, that's how that works. Yeah, we are, we are on strike, which means um, for your, uh, just for your delicious anticipation, at some point, I, I think it's inevitable, there will be a photograph of me with a picket sign. Mm -hmm. Probably marching, probably, it's, I'm in New York, so I'll be, they'll probably tell me to go march around the um, Rockefeller Center or or Sony, probably maybe Sony here at Madison Square. So someplace, I, mean, I hope it's someplace walkable. But mm -hmm. yeah, that I will be striking. And this also explains why, I mean, again, it's a podcast, but people just have to take my word for it. You're wearing these faded uh, industrial denim uh, overalls and your sort of Leninist beret right now. Well, you know, when, when you call tools down, <laughs> or as the writer's school says, pencils down, uh, which they do, actually, that is their phrase. Uh, you, is it really? There's an, you know, the thing about it is that like, you're making a joke, but my first Writers Guild meeting, which was now 1990, I've been a member of the Writers Guild for 33 years. Um, there was some guy stood up. It was, it was after, it was a couple, a bunch of years after the last, the previous strike. 
um, and he stood up, old man, and he uh, and he wore a Greek fisher. He's wearing a Greek fisherman's cap. And at that point, at a certain point, when you're old enough in the writer's guild, you basically they gave you a Greek fisherman's cap that you had to wear <laughs> at all the meetings so you could look like a proletariat. And he stood up, and he was wearing like a denim. He's wearing like the, the Canadian tuxedo, like a denim shirt and, and jeans. And he, uh, un, and he, you know, you don't. Everybody can speak because they're all writers. He raised his hand. And he had something to say about the studios, and he unleashed this barrage of incredible obscenity. I mean, like not just blue, but like unbelievably graphic, invective. Um, and uh, the guy, the older writer sitting next to me, who knew him, nudged me and said. He writes children's books, <laughs> which was true. Uh, yeah, so there's a whole, there is a whole, there's a lot of cosplay. Uh-huh. You know, all the emails from the Writers Guild always say in solidarity and solidarity with our brothers and sisters. A lot of that. There's a lot of that. But in fairness, you've been critical of the strikes in the past. I think that's fair to say, or the, the union in the past. Oh, yeah. But you're, you were, um, the last we talked about this, you were suggesting that you might actually be in favor of the strike. Is that, what is your actual view on the merits? Or are you, we should be clear to the listeners, are you allowed to give your honest opinion on this? <laughs> or will like you get beaten up with a bag of like a pillowcase yeah. full of oranges if you do? Yeah, it'll be like uh, on the waterfront. Um, Bobo and his team will come and beat me up. I am allowed to say what I think. Um, I have been doing it for a long time. It has not made me very popular uh-huh, uh-huh. in the Writers Guild to say what I think. Uh, or in the world beyond, let's well, just be fair. Beyond, look, look, I, can, I, can, I can't control that. Yeah. Um, but in this case, I think, um, and, and, I, and when I used to do a, a commentary on public radio in LA, for, I did it for 16 years, and, um, and I, every now and then I'd t- talk about the strike, and I talked about the one we, we had um, in 2007, um, and I was very, I thought was, oh, that was very silly, I thought it was a waste of time. It went, lasted about 14 weeks, went on too long, and it was got nothing, and got nothing. Um, I thought it was dumb when they decided we all had to fire our agents to rewrite the agent contract. I thought it was dumb. And I was fully prepared to think this is dumb too, because, you know, I mean, I don't, yeah, I, I'm one of these people who does not even believe a broken clock is, is right twice a day. I mm-hmm. think the broken clock is just wrong all the time. <laughs> but then I was reading what they, were, what they were asking for, and there's a whole bunch of it that just seems kind of silly, and the stuff you put in and you can't really get and you shouldn't really be asking for and some of it is anachronistic and just needs to be um you know tossed out the residual idea right now writers are getting residuals based on uh, reruns of their shows and streaming residuals so that's good um but that's eventually going to sunset there's no way you can possibly do that you know, in, in the way we way people pay for entertainment now and then um and then there's a whole section of things which are really a bit about uh, about how the business is going to sustain itself going forward. Whether you could be a young person and come to LA and struggle and write and break into a, to a business and whether that business, when you, when you break into it, will allow you to live normally. Um, and a lot of that is, uh, a lot of that is on the table. And I actually feel like there is rare moments where, I, don't, I, don't, I can't even think of one right now, where a union is arguing to the management that this is going to make you, the business that you're in healthier mm-hmm. and this is going to make it easier for you to put to find hit tv shows that we are all aligned financially um but you have been mismanaging your side of the business which i think is something it's hard to argue with i don't think that the heads of i don't think bob Iger, who runs disney would argue with that there's a reason why they're laying off four thousand people and or five or ten at some point right there's a reason it's because they've horribly mismanaged their side of the business so something has to happen um, and I think this will give, I mean, this is going to be a benefit for the studios, right? Because the 
I don't know how many days they get legally, they're allowed to force majeure every contract and every deal they have, which means they can mm-hmm. fire everybody. Mm-hmm. Or they can sustain, or they call suspend and extend, which is what they did with us years ago, uh, which is always a drag because it means like, and as soon as this is over, you come right back to work. Right? <laughs> but that will allow them, to, they're, they're going to have, if this thing get lasts, if it doesn't get solved in the next couple of weeks, it's going to last and um, it'll allow them to force majeure people. They'll have two or three really good quarters because you know you have a great quarter when you're not paying anybody, right? Um, and you're not paying, you're not making any TV shows or movies, and um, and all your competitors are in the same boat, right? That's exactly. the key here. Is like, right. If everyone's got a wet blanket on it on you, then you don't have to worry about losing market share to people right. who don't have the same disadvantages you got. Except there are people who don't have the same disadvantages, and there are people called not Americans. Mm-hmm. And um, hate those guys. Hate those guys. And I would have said, you know, five years ago, ten years ago, well, that who Americans are not going to watch something that's not American. Are you crazy? Well, one of the biggest shows of the past 18 months has been Squid Game, which is the South Korean thing, which was in crazily in South Korean. Like you watched yeah. it. It was set in South Korea and people spoke Korean. It was crazy. And Americans loved it. Uh, so I don't know. I don't, no one has any leverage here. Um, it, really is a, it really is sort of an existential... I mean, the Writers Guild is like kind of typically overwriting everything and saying this is an existential threat to writers, artists, which it's not. Um, but I'm not sure I know another way to solve this without a big reset, a big stinking reset, which is going to hurt a lot of people. Uh, it's certainly in LA when, when production stops um, and here in New York. Um, but I'm not sure. I, I don't, don't see another way. I don't, um, unfortunately. So, it, so I'm going to be in this weird position of marching around with a picket sign. I have changed my hostility towards private sector unions a good deal over the last 10 years because at the very least i mean the writers maybe not but like yeah as general in general like private sector unions understand that you need a private sector to have the union right the business needs to exist right 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 and so there is some forcing mechanism for coming to a reasonable conclusion public sector unions you know, oh, so my grandkids will pay for my right. lavish lifestyle. Screw that. I, I, I all, but so like, you know, I'm open to the idea that like the, the writer's guild is, is right on this one. Um, well, uh, the difference here, the, the, compl- the complexity here is that usually when you have a, a public, se- a private sector union, it's uh, everyone's doing kind of roughly the same job. Mm-hmm. So all the machinists are over there and all these guys are there and all these guys are over there. They're all kind of doing all the UPS. They're all doing the same job. I drive around, I deliver UPS packages, I, whatever I, you know, it's, there's a unified system. And in this you have, uh, it's complicated because um, the richest people in the Writers Guild are mostly executive producers or showrunners, right? And they're huge, a huge part of my salary and their salary, my, what I get is, has, is negotiated by my agent. It's based on my quote, what I've done in the past. It has nothing to do with the Writers Guild. And, and only a, a bare minimum of that is, um, is, is, I owe dues on, you know, percent and a half of the gross or, or an alternative minimum tax, if you will. That's what they really do. So you have, a, you have, you have grandees in the Writers Guild, you know, multimillionaires, centimillionaires in the Writers Guild marching around the studio gates saying, saying they've been mistreated. And then in the companies themselves, like what does Amazon really have? Amazon has nothing to do with Warner Brothers Discovery. I mean, nothing. Amazon is the richer than country has nothing to do it, the it it's motion picture and television production arm is i mean my god it must be 
a tiny subset. It's a money yeah. losing subset. Um, Disney and Amazon have nothing to do with one another. Amazon's trying to sell you toothpaste. They just want you to watch so they can sell you toothpaste. Um, so th- the idea that those companies are negotiating, they have different priorities too. So um, that argues that either this will get s- settled soon because they only can possibly agree on two or th- the other side can only agree on two or three things or it'll go on for a long time because it needs to be a lot of like coming together on the part of the studios on what their, what their threshold really is. Let me ask this this way. So my um, dad, when I was a little kid, he would often say to me, you know, for all you do around here, we could replace you with a monkey. <laughs> and right. I didn't like hearing this. And it caused me, it caused me some angst. Um, but he thought it was hilarious. Um, there's all, I mean, everyone just keeps saying it as if like everyone, like I, I, I see all these reporters, you know, you know, with this hazard paid duty of reporting from the strike area. Um, you know, <laughs> um, and they're all like, they're all like, and of course they're very worried about the impact of AI and how they can all be replaced by AI. And no one ever explains to me what that would look like. I mean, it seems to me it's kind of like saying we can replace you with a monkey to a certain extent in that. Yeah. Well, a good monkey. It's a very bright monkey. Yeah. Like, like, you know, on the right tail of the bell curve of monkeys. Um, but like, uh, what are, are, are they really going to say to chat GBT? Give me a 22 minute script about a kid from the inner city living with a, a fabulous white family on the upper um, East side. I mean, there's like, and they're just going to spit it out and it's going to seem like it's original, not plagiarized or anything like that? Well, I mean, you were referring to, of course, to different strokes. I am. Which I, I do believe could have been written. <laughs> I mean, I, um, what you talking about, Rob? <laughs> <laughs> it, could, it could. I mean, I was talking about this last night. Like, yeah, if you could create a hypothetical scenario in which there is a system that is so smart, it can write jokes and stuff and if that happens yeah i think that would be that would be you know that would that would hurt the employment possibilities for a lot of people Mm -hmm. i i don't think that's imminent i mean i i think that it i don't i don't see i don't i haven't seen anything from chat gpt that i I i've seen things grammatically correct and interesting and factual and pretty good summaries of stuff but i haven't seen anything that felt like it was a joke I, I, it was sort of a joke-ish. Jokes are kind of mysterious. I think you could write. I, th- I think you could write daytime drama. In fact, I think they're going to be writing daytime drama that way, because at a certain point, it's the actor doing the face that approximates the emotion. You know, like people are watching the the actor on on screen, which I think is true a lot of times. Um, you know, some of the best scenes you've ever seen in the film, if you watch, read them in the script, they don't make that much sense mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or they're not that good, but somehow the actor made it work. And, and I would say this with episodes of, of any good TV show, certainly the ones I worked on um, when they were hitting their stride was that if you came to the table reading, which is the first day, and you read, um, and you sat there with the cast as they read the script, the, the written script, the first draft, and then you came to the shoot and you compared those two, the shooting script and the table draft. The shooting script sometimes doesn't make really make that much sense. The, a lot of the connective tissue has been removed. A lot of the little filigrees on lines have been removed because it's had a week of rehearsal where the actors have brought so much to it that uh, it's a better show but a worse printed document. 
Um, and I think that, that that ultimately is one of the problems, I think, that one of the things that the studios have done that been a mistake, and I think people have felt that when they watch TV, that there's nothing really compelling them to sit down and watch it. It feels like homework, some of it. And that's because I think they've they've overproduced and they've, if they haven't done ChatGPT, they think of, they already think of content as sort of a ChatGPT thing, like a giant, you know, salami roll. You just keep slicing it and it's, it'll be fine. Um, I think that's, that's the mistake. Uh, and that has, that'll, that'll have to change. And I don't think it's going to necessarily be great for the writers because there'd be fewer writers employed in the future. But I think that's because it'll be less content. Yeah, no, I can see that. I, I can see how you would get some AI system to lay down the, the tracks and then, or the foundation, and then you punch up, right? Because I think that's what ChatGTP is going to do for a lot of people is that it's going to write first drafts for a lot of people, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, particularly college kids. I don't think in 10 years, there's not going to be a single term paper that, ha- that the first draft of which wasn't written by some AI instead of them. Um, and that's true. But I, I was, I'm just amazed I was an English major. So the, the exams that I did the best on and the ones that I thought were the, that I remember, that I learned the most actually, were the ones that you sat and you write an exam. Like right. sitting and writing an exam is an ancient thing. And we'll just go back to that. Yeah. I know. Look, I, I, I took all my savings out and um, invested massively in uh, manufacturers of, of blue books. <laughs> Good. That was small. That was yeah. Because I think there's just going to be a huge run on oh, them. Yeah. You know? Right. Right. And we'll take a quick break to hear from our sponsor today, Aura Frames. Looking for a really special gift for this Father's Day? Whether it's the group shot from the family reunion, the 20-pound bass he caught last summer, or his favorite photo of mom, an Aura digital frame is the best way to display dad's favorite memories. Obviously, every dad in my life already has one of these frames because I'm obsessed with them, as you guys kind of know. Today's picture in our kitchen is just from three months ago of husband of the pod holding the new baby on the couch, and it's really cute. And I make sure that our frame only switches pictures about once a day, but you can set it to switch every 30 seconds or once a week so that it's more like a real picture frame. When you give it to your dad, your husband, whatever dad in your life needs a frame. Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frames with preloaded photos and memories. Your father, your grandpa, your husband, husband, or even your brother, let him see what a great dad he is with an Aura frame. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Father's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. This deal ends June 18th, so don't wait. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Where to go from here? So, um, oh, I was going to say, when you were talking about the, the, how the actors bring a lot to it, I happened to catch recently. Um, I know you're not you're not a huge Friends fan, right? I mean, that's not. Uh, no, I liked it. It just it just was. I, it, it was on when I was like busy. I didn't see that many of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it, you know, Friends is one of those shows that that is a great example of writer and actor development. There's a great episode I I caught recently. It was on the background. Um, Joey Tribbiani teaches at the Learning Annex, uh, acting for acting, right. for soap yeah. operas. And he explains how if you hear shocking news, sometimes he's like, he's, he's explaining that there's another form of acting that I, he finds very difficult. It's called reacting. So here are some tips. And one of them is if you hear something shocking, you uh, make a face like you got a fish hook stuck in your eyebrow, right? That pulls it up. 
And if you hear um, uh, really bad news that you have trouble processing, I just try to figure out what 33 times 562 is. And then you just see his <laughs> eyes darting back and forth. It was actually pretty well done. That's really good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but that's a good, uh, friends, a really good example of, a, of, um, of the magic that happens when um, you're broke. Uh, or you have hired by 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 mistake. You've hired the right people. So NBC was broke. Uh, they were having trouble. They hired the the right people, but they thought that they thought they were the wrong people to do the show. Um, these people came to the site with the idea. It was called the Courtney Cox Show for a long time because she was the so most well known person. Um, and it was just about six young people hanging around in New York City, and that was pretty much it. And NBC, I was doing a show at the NBC, doing a pilot at NBC at the time. And NBC was like, you know, this is never going to go because it's all about young people. And the people who control the remote at home are uh, middle-aged women, usually the mom. And there's no mom, there's no mom character as the way in. They say the way into the show for mm. our crucial viewer. Um, it te- didn't test very well. Uh, there were no stars in it. Had uh, had uh, Matthew Perry in it, which at that point, he had been in a million busted pilots and everybody thought, well, Matthew Perry, that may- why even bother? Right? Yeah. Uh, and then the show was like a 40 share. Uh, because it, it, any hit of anything, of any really of any kind, is a mistake. Someone blew it. The system did not work. The system's designed to squash that. Yeah. Uh, and you, there's no chat GPT can anticipate that. And there's no, um, and there's no formula. There's no, there's no, uh, you know, no guy can sit there and, and reverse engineer a hit at the top at Warner Brothers Discovery or Sony or wherever. You just, you just, you, you have to try everything. Um, and you have to hope. And that, that's not a great business model, but that doesn't mean it's not the business model. It just means that Hollywood has always been a bad business model. All right. So I, I, I started to tell you about this in the, um, in the virtual green room, as it were, sure. where, where all the real money in podcasts is made anyway. That's where the gold is, Jonah. I keep saying that. <laughs> and uh, so uh, longtime listeners of this, of this podcast know that I, I have this mild obsession with the daily from the New York times. <laughs> yeah. And, um, I, I only ever listen to it. Like when I got to go do TV or I'm running a column on the exact topic that the daily is on. That's about 99% of the time. It's sort of like, I'm doing homework. I'm in the car, try to get up to speed on what's going on, that kind of thing. And usually those are the ones where it's a reporter from the times and they're just talking, they're, the reporters just summarizing the reporting and that's useful to me. But Barbaro has this, he is active listening. I don't know. I think that's what you would call it, where he telegraphs that he is listening and he's like letting the audience know this is what should be shocking or interesting to you too. And I swear okay. his, he sounds, once you get it in your head or like once I got it in my head, that he sounds like he was, I'll put this delicately, struggling in a bathroom stall. <laughs> that is delicate. Yeah. Yeah. He you mean alone. He's struggling alone in the bathroom stall. Yes. I yes. just want to make sure we were clear yes. what's going on in the bathroom stall. Yes. Um, and um and there's a just ever so slight between the 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 gastrointestinal stockovite uh effort. Uh, there's a, also a vaguely erotic sound to it. Okay. Well, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's for our next session, Jonah. Yeah. yeah that's a thing. That's a thing. <laughs> yeah. I, I get it. So, um, and, but some of the, but the person who's talking is talking about very serious things. Okay. So 
What I'd like you to do is let's just pick a serious event. Okay. Uh, you can describe the lead up to World War II, something you know about, right? But that has, that has dramatic things going on in it. And I'm Michael Barbero listening to you. Uh, we have not rehearsed this. You did not know I was going to do this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it may not work and we'll just cut it. So, uh, but lead up to the Civil War, assassination, like whatever you want. I don't, it doesn't really matter. Uh, well, why don't, why don't we keep it on topic? That way I'll, it'll be, it'll be, okay. it, you, you could actually refer to this as a moment when you, when you, you know, stayed on topic for the, oh, that's for the, that, for the straining gag. Wow. Okay. <laughs> go ahead. Um, well, if you look at the past 18 months, you've seen, you know, 4,000 people laid off. Oh. You've seen, you've seen uh, the head of, of Comcast, president of Comcast, NBC, Universal, fired. Uh-huh. <laughs> Ironically you fired. Have to, you have to stay straight. Oh, sorry. It's, it's not easy. I think he put me, he, he may lay this track in later. Um, um, maybe it's what he's. I think it might be a soundboard. And <laughs> like, he's just sort of like, all right, bring up the grunt. Um, well, maybe, maybe he's listening to the guy on his phone while recording yeah. in the stall. So it is actually both of the things that you think it is. Uh, and then, uh, and then they fired the head of NBC universal uh, for doing, uh, who had a few years before fired Ronnie Meyer, who was head of universal for doing uh, exactly uh, the uh, same uh, thing. So you're looking at this general chaos mm. in, which is rare in, in, in show business at the top. And, uh, and then you compare it to the writers who are feeling that um, there's no, um, well, I'm, this isn't this is not as dramatic, is it? I mean, that's the problem with the strike. It just isn't dramatic. Ah, oh. <laughs> <laughs> right, we're done. I don't have to do this anymore. But like, you get the point. It just it drives do, me crazy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I couldn't have Francis Fukuyama on and try this out. So. Yeah, yes, you could. <laughs> um, um, uh, uh, there was an old Saturday Night Live sketch that Harry Shearer did, where he's a morning, he's like a morning DJ uh, in the booth interviewing somebody who was coming. I think it was maybe the host was in town. You know, one of those guys coming in, you're in town, you're going to be performing. And he is uh, cleaning up the, the booth, putting all the carts back and then running the booth while he's, in, in, while he's conducting this interview. So he like put some stuff in the shelf, goes, yeah, then you, you, then you came to me up and they go back. He's like not listening. It's great. That, that, that whole bit, that's great. And then he would, it was great. It was a version of that, which is sort of active listening, but you're def, def, definitely doing something else. I'm not that, but what, what do you think that you think he does that in person? I have no idea. It just, it's so weird and distracting to me. And now the problem is I will start to tune out what like, you know, Maggie Habern's on there talking about the like, latest Trump trial or whatever. And I'm just waiting for the, 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 the ah, I mean, all these weird sounds yeah. and it drives me crazy. And he, he also does this thing where he's trying to force out his question while he's clearly distracted <laughs> wow. by something else. <laughs> and, and sometimes it sounds onanistic and sometimes it sounds gastrointestinal, but both I, and sometimes well, it sounds you know, both, you know, you're down I, there in the root chakra, no matter where. Yeah. 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 All right. So, um, this is, this is, this is too much glop style content. <laughs> I was going to say, for the remnant. why did you not save this? This feels like, <laughs> this really doesn't feel like it's a, uh, it's a, a, a highfalutin remnant dispatch content. This feels like glop. It, it's very glop. And then, but this is, this is part of my desire to have you on is do a little advertising for glop. Oh, that's nice of you. Thank and, you. And yeah. if people want um, <laughs> more of that, <laughs> more sort of jocularity and yeah. juvenilia, uh, they should go back and find the episode where we talked about the game of cornholing. Um, oh yeah, that. people like people. I had people come up to me and tell me that every now and then they re-listen to it, which is like, well, it wasn't like 
This is as if we wrote the material out that it's... It's the only episode I've ever... It's, it's literally the only episode of Glop I've ever listened to. Um, and it's yeah. one of the only like four podcasts I've been on that I've ever listened to. I don't think I've ever listened to anything I've been on. Um, and the other one that I still laugh remembering is not so much that we laugh, but that Fedoritz, John Fedoritz could not get through the spot, the ad for uh, Kitty, Kitty Poo, Poo the, yeah. the litter, Kitty Litter. That way he just lost it. And I, I remember thinking like, what's he laughing at? Because I hadn't read ahead and I'm reading, oh, it is kind of funny, but he simply couldn't get through it. Yeah, and he also, I, he would do these riffs about how like, I'm the editor of one of the foremost intellectual <laughs> journals in America yeah. and I'm sitting here reading my kitty poo. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Which was sort of interesting because the idea that that, that would excuse you from it. It would seem to be that would be, that should be your punishment. Um, well, also, it, it, the, the, that great line of Marxists who had written for commentary when it was back in a radical journal are like, we were right about capitalism. It turns everything to garbage, you know. Right. <laughs> the, right, right. You're becoming a, him. Right. a shill for commercial bourgeois interests. You know? And yet, it's a, it's a. I mean, I don't have a cat, but it seems like a good product. Yeah, yeah. It seemed. I don't know if it still is a product. That's a good question. Yeah, I don't know either. Maybe it was a, a product that just trying to find its, uh, find its purpose. Um, poppers. Uh, so, have you been watching Succession? Uh, I haven't been watching the latest. Succession, but I have been watching the. I mean, I'm familiar with it. Yeah, I, I, I'm saving the last. I haven't. The stuff that's happened, I'm not. Um, it, it, it seems to be spinning a little out of control for me, anyway. So I think that's right. I think that's right. And I think um, the only reason I ask is because Pod won't let us talk about it on Glop because he has this weird, perverse loyalty thing about News Corp, and he feels too close to it. And I, I feel like that ship has sort of sailed. But um, he hasn't watched it, and so it's one of those oh, really? things that he hasn't watched, and so. I thought we could talk about it here, but well, so, they have watched it. Um, I, I, I don't want to get you in trouble since you are um, on, um, on that uh, Fox thing from time to time. Fox. Uh, but do you have any thoughts about uh, breaking how, news? How all that worked out? Uh, yeah. Well, you know, I was Mrs. there. Lincoln? That, yeah, I was there. <laughs> I, will, I, I was doing Gutfeld on that Monday. And when the story broke and. Uh, they just set the topics and I was still working on this story broke. And um, I texted him. I said, um, should I wear a bow tie tonight in solidarity? And it was <laughs> quiet, sol uh, silent solidarity. And um, at first he was like, yeah, it'd be great. It'd be fun. And then he said, don't know. Actually, uh, no, don't. We've, uh, yeah. Um, I, I think there are two, two things going on. Well, three really. W one is that um, you know you're going to have to fire him. You're going to have to fire Tucker at some point if you're paying attention to the your total lack of control over what he says and his complete and utter contempt for the people in charge um so you know it's going to happen you know it's going to happen it's going to happen at some point it's it, it whether it happens now or a year from now or two years it's only going to get worse and harder a year or two from now so there is a management argument to doing it right then uh and then, then if you read all the redacted texts and, and emails, you realize how much contempt he has for his, the person he reports to. And so she can in, in no way be expected to manage him. You can't turn to her and say, oh, this guy who called you that name, yeah, tell him he's got to do this or that. But she can't do that. Now, now he's your direct report, which is nobody wants, right? You don't want that. So you know you're going to have to do it. Just separate. This is separate from the $787 million. And then I, I understand he wasn't named in any of those um, 
uh, suits, really, or he wasn't the, the prime, you know, villain there. It was Lou Dobbs or Maria Bartiromo or, or, or Ginny Pirro or um, uh, there's one other one I can't forget. I can't remember who, who are worse. But he represents the consciousness of the company. So if you were Dominion or definitely if you're Smartmatic, you're saying, no, no, this is the number one guy. This is your primetime lineup. They all knew it was a lie, which means that the company knew it was a lie. And the company's on trial. Um, so the, the, so the re, all the emails and texts that were released really were damning. I mean, that is why there was a settlement. And then, and then there's this weird third bad management thing, which, I mean, I, I've said, so it, it's a, it, 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 I'm sure it won't in, um, enamor me to the management at Fox, but it, it was a, that was a place that used to be run really, really well. Whether you agreed with it, you liked it or you didn't like it. Mm-hmm. It was run very, very well. Everybody knew where everybody stood and everybody knew who the boss was. And um, one of the things I remember, just to name drop, that because uh, uh, um, acquaintanceship with Rupert Murdoch was he used to roll his eyes and complain and make very funny jokes. He's very funny about the, the grandee element in Hollywood. That he hated, like, he just wanted out of that show business mm-hmm. for a long time. He didn't like the the pageantry of those people. He didn't like their pomposity. He didn't like the fact that the president of Fox, 20th Century Fox, had six assistants. <laughs> and Rupert Murdoch, who owned that company and a bunch of other companies, had one secretary that, by the way, had, he had, was his dad's secretary. He brought her over from Australia. I will say one thing, though. I, 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 sight unseen, no firsthand experience. I bet you she was a damn good secretary. She was really good. <laughs> yeah. She was really good. And a lovely person, sort of no yeah. nonsense. But that was, the, you know, he didn't, if you, if he, I had lunch with him once and he said, oh, let's, let's have lunch. I'll be back in New York in two weeks, in uh, two months. Let's have lunch on like Tuesday the 13th. Just saying, he's just saying this to me. I'm like, okay, fine. And I'm like, you know, that's not like going to happen, but okay, right. fine. And then, you know, you get an email from his secretary saying, so Tuesday the 13th. It was that, was, it keep, just there was no there is still no no pretension about it right mm-hmm. so he didn't like all that and he preferred the news but unfortunately the part of the news that he's in that generates the eight hundred million dollars free cash every year is the show business part yeah so whether you like it or you don't like it he's just dealing with insane stars like you would be if you were making a movie I mean there's these people are not they're, they're celebrities yeah and and he and so talent management is just as important, maybe not, maybe actually more important now for him because he's been liable, personally liable, um, not personally, but the company's been liable for what their talent was saying because the talent wasn't being managed. You can't run away from that. If, you're, if, you're, if you put something on a screen, whether it's news or movies or TV or a sitcom, it's show business, whether you like it or not. And you're going to have to treat the people on it like stars because whether you like it or not, they are. Um, and I was just surprised that when they, when they fired Tucker, just, just knowing, just being inside that one day. And then a few days later, just, just talking to people, how, uh, lousy and amateur hour the firing was and the handling of it with their big stars. It just seemed, it seemed like that alone was part of the problem. Like that everybody was jittery. Like, well, why? Like the, the, you, if you, if you, there are people on that show that network that you love and you're the manager of that network those people should have known it within 25 minutes of the firing you know you buy them a car a carton of cigarettes or like you know expensive scotch you go to the you go to the set where they're on and you tell them how much you love them you do all the stuff that talent managers do because that's the business you're in um 
So I agree with most of that. I'm not going to get too deep in the weeds because I just did this special live uh, remnant last night with me and Steve and Starwalt. And we, oh, great. Well, well. We, we did a lot of airing of the grievances about the Vox stuff. Um, <laughs> but um, I think one, the one thing that I think, because this is a point I was making last night is like, put Tucker aside for just two seconds. Um, if you, all right, so you have option A is pay $787,500,000. Okay, that's option A. That's, okay. And that's only, and you know there's two more coming. Yeah, no, no, just, just, yeah. just we're doing yeah. a binary thing here. So option okay. A is that. Then option B is endure $100 million, $50 million in, in legal expenses, have all of your dirty laundry aired in the national media for three months, and then pay $787,500,000. Most people would pick yeah. A, right? Because if right. you're going to, you know, it's like, and so the, the I think the thing that kind of changed everything was, um, which explains why they waited to settle on the courthouse steps, is that um, this whole issue of how Rupert is in fact an officer of Fox News and not just an officer of the parent company. And right. so therefore he was directly implicated and would have to testify and all that kind of stuff. And River was like, yeah, I'm not doing that. And, um, and their lawyers were like, yeah, he's not doing that. You know? And like, I actually, I've been a long time defender of Rupert in all sorts of ways. I don't think he's covered himself in glory in the last few years, but, um, he's 92 friggin' years old. And like, like you don't want a 92 year old on the stand. Because like 92-year-olds might have good reason to just be, have a sort of screw it, what have I got to lose kind of attitude about how they talk. And that's if they're compass mentis. Yeah, I mean, you know, he, he, he was deposed. Um, it did not go well. It did not, did not go well for him, but he told the truth. That's why it didn't go well. Um, right. It wasn't, it, it wasn't as if it didn't go well because they caught him in a bunch of lies. They, you know, he told the truth. He said, this is what I, he, he answered the question honestly the way you're supposed to. He played by the rules. Well, he um, also could have done a lot more I do not recalls and a yeah, lot more. Yeah. You know. I mean, I, I think for, for him, I mean, he is always <laughs> since since the tele, since the uh, uh, voicemail scandal in Britain, you know, a bunch of years ago, which t took down a, one of his papers. Um, he has always been an advocate of not. Sending emails and texts, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> like do not put it in writing, which is very good, sort of very good corporate hygiene anyway. Um, yeah, I think that's part of the part of the, that's part of the question. The other uh, other issue is um, there's a whole bunch of redacted stuff, redacted discovery from Do, from Dominion. There's additional redacted. There's additional discovery for Smartmatic. All of that discovery will be going to Abby Grossberg in her lawsuit that is specifically about Tucker. Um, in, in addition to more discovery, um, there is stuff in that redacted um, material that we haven't seen that um, that. Uh, at least whether this is true or not, at least the, 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 the position of management at that company has been to its employees, uh, take a breath before you come out um, in solidarity with your fallen brother because there's more to come out and we don't want you to look s stupid. Um, now, that could be true. Uh, it also could be untrue. That's what I would, I would, I would say that even wasn't true if I was running that company is to keep everybody, to, you know, everybody shut up and get a little scared. But it is highly likely there, there's nothing about those texts or emails that suggest restraint. Um, so who knows what's in there? 
Um, I mean, who knows? We know that the, the, the two most powerful officers of the company know what was in there. Uh, and their decision was rip the Band-Aid off today. So there's, you know. Yeah, I'm um, just saying, the reason I brought it up was one, I think there's a lot of bad lawyering going on. Shockingly bad lawyering. And uh, two, that there's a lot we just don't know, right? There's a lot, there's, there's, I don't buy any of the individual theories about why they fucked a fired Tucker. Um, <laughs> when they f- retire. Um, uh, but I think them in combination um, yeah. gets you pretty close, right? And um, because you wouldn't, if you were going to clean house of the people who lied about the election, you wouldn't take the one of those implicated. You wouldn't take the one who lied the least and was the most valuable. You would fire the one who lied the most and was the least valuable. Now you could say that was, uh, what's his name? Lou Dobbs. Lou Dobbs, right. Um, Which they did. Who I only found out last night is still alive and has a Twitter account. Yeah, Maria Bartiromo will probably go. Probably Janine Pirro will go. Um, you know, be slow. They, they, they should fire them all t- today. They, should, they shouldn't wait. But I mean, I don't think the management there is, is, that, is that agile. It all goes down to like an a, a elemental, very stupid business decision, which is like businesses make all the time. It's the very beginning. They got too close to the candidate. At the very best, the, the, the Trump administration was going to last eight years, right? That's its, that, that's its apex. It couldn't go past eight years. And that is a very, very narrow window to bet your entire company on. The News Corp and Fox News has a larger future and a bigger future and more years to think about than just those eight. And when they threw it all in for a guy who, whether he was great or bad or terrible or the best president ever, it doesn't matter what you think, was freshness dated at the beginning. You knew when he was going to expire. It was just kind of very, very, very foolish. And then to try to be cute about it at the end and get out of it some way and keep everybody happy was just, um, uh, that's just above their pay grade. First of all, nobody can do that. Uh, but also just the idea that you thought you could do that, that there was some way that there was some, even in those emails, you could just see the, you know, how actors sometimes think they're smarter than they are. And I don't mean that you know, Tucker's not a smart guy, but when he wrote the email, it was about, look, it's hurting the company. What we're doing is hurting the company. Look at the stock price. I just thought, oh my God, what a moron, what a child. What a fool. This is what every, every movie star says when they think they understand climate change. Like, what a moron. You have no idea what is happening in the stock market. You have no idea how audiences work. You have no idea how the ratings work. Um, it's going to go down and up and down and up. And the stock price was never lower than when Rupert Murdoch tried to c- combine the companies. Should he have been fought? I mean, it's like, this is, this is stupidity. Um, uh, get out and get out fast. Just say what happened and then move. And then you, then some people go to Newsmax and that's fine. And those people will come back. Some people, and who knows? But the idea that you can, that these are forces that you can tame and control and channel and ease into the truth was just, it, that's just childish. Yeah. So like uh, this, this gets at the heart of basically, I wrote this piece 20 years ago. God, it sucks getting old. Um, about how, do you ever see the Sam Raimi movie, A Simple Plan? Oh yeah. 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 I argue that it was maybe the most conservative movie of the 1990s because the whole gist of it was you had this nice guy, decent guy, married, starting family, running a business, acted with honesty and integrity. And then his half-wit brother and his brother's half-wit brother's friend uh, have this idea that let's just keep this money we found. It's a simple plan. Keep the money we find in the woods. 
what could go wrong, right? And and like Billy Bob Thornton at one point says, this is the American dream. And Bill Pullman says, the American dream is, you work for the American dream. And then Thornton says, this is better. <laughs> and, and, and the irony of the simple plan is that it turns out like if you just, if you, if you just do call the balls and strikes, you do the right thing the right way, you act with yeah. integrity, it's a hedge against unforeseeable screw-ups, right? If you think you're always going to be smarter, you, you can outsmart events and that you know what's coming around the corner, you're just going to get blindsided eventually. It could work for you a little while. I, I, I've long thought that the, the thing, the reason why Trump is such a chaos agent in our politics is he's one of these, you know, there's like, there's always one monkey. If you get enough monkeys throwing darts at the stock pages, eventually you're going to get the greatest stock picker in world history. But like, that's not a reason for like having a monkey pick stocks. It's, it's that he's, he's, he's done the wrong thing and it's worked for him so many times that he no longer has this ability to understand risk taking the right way. And, and he's just this weird black swan statistical outlier. If you go through a life, you're still going to have bad luck and good luck and all that kind of stuff. But if you go through it with a little honesty and a little integrity and you do, you stay in your lane, the upside might be a little lower in some cases, but the downside is going to be much better than in other cases. And at the end, you're going to be okay. And Fox went for the quick win by like going all in on Trump, which is a violation of journalistic ethics. It's a violation of like sort of the long-term fiduciary obligation to do things the right way. And now the, they're getting the, the, the pendulum's going back on them and they're getting the, the, the penalties for all the gains that they got the last few years. The house is taking its money back. The house is getting, yeah, I think that's a very, that's a, exactly the way to put it. I mean, I, I, there, there are two, I, I know some people who, who, who went to work for Trump and who worked for Trump and um, they almost all have the same, except for the, the, the 100% all in Moonies, right? Most of them have this kind of, you know, I can, I think I can handle him. I think I know, I, you know, the thing about him is he, but, but, but all this like condescending to the president because he's mentally and emotionally unstable, but I can handle, let me tell you, I, if I'm there, I can help shape the blah, 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 blah. None of the, of course that, none of that worked. And Trump in many ways represents the audience in general, the giant id of the audience where people think, I think we know what people, people want, you know, like if you're ahead of NBC in 1992, like nobody wants a show about the American people do not want to see six young people in New York City. They don't. They need a middle-aged woman. That's what we know. Like all that, all the smart people. Uh, and that's what they did um, under uh, for him. But also they did it, um, it, it wasn't even, like the great thing about ca a cable operation like that is you have two uh, income streams that are related, right? You have audience, which is you sell advertising against, which are not, not that great, but not terrible. I mean, their number one show, Tucker, I mean, lost about 80 million, 85, 90 million dollars over two, three years with these um, advertising boycotts. And then you have intensity of the viewer. So if the cable, if you turn to your cable company, you run, you run Fox and you say, okay, from now on Comcast cable or whatever cable, you owe us, you know, a dollar per subscriber uh, to carry our news. Uh, and the cable operation, they're only leveraged to say, no, we're not going to pay you and we'll just take you off our system. And um, if it's, you know, I don't know, if it's CNN, you may not have that kind of leverage. The, the, how many people are passionately, passionately love CNN? Who knows? But you know that the passionate Fox News viewer is going to complain and dump their cable and do a lot about a bunch of other things and cease to be a customer of that cable operation if it doesn't carry Fox News. Um, 
So you have number and intensity, and you're always playing with those two values, right? And it's great to have the intensity, but that intensity may mean a smaller number. And it's harder to monetize that intensity all the time. So you kind of need to have both. And it, it, it really feels a lot like you're going down the middle and you're being a little bit, um, you're being conservative, but you're being kind of like establishment conservative. Um, and that's actually a really great place to be financially, right? It, it may not, it, you may not get the intensity you want, um, but you're going to get other things. And those people aren't going to, if, if their cable company says, uh, you know, we're going to take Fox News off, they're not going to say, oh, that, you know, Romney, Rhino, and never Trumper station, forget it. They're going to still want it because the only option is something weirder. So it's funny we we ended up here because I just wrote my it's out today my LA Times column on a related thing, which is, um, and you have some as one of the founders of Ricochet, longtime friend of National Review, uh, use some firsthand experience with this. Uh, comment sections. There's a Gresham law, Gresham's law of comment sections, which is that the the crappiest commenters will crowd out the best, right? Because bad money chases out good, bad feedback chases out good feedback because the, the good, decent people, simply by virtue of being good, decent people, they don't want to spend all their time in a comment section anyway. And they certainly don't want to spend all their time in a comment, comment section getting yelled at and called literally Hitler or whatever, right? <laughs> right, right? And so they just leave and then you just leave the place to itself. And, and I, it, it dawned on me that like, what has happened over the last seven, eight years, uh, first in online in right wing media or just online generally, is the comment sections have taken over, right? Um, and Tim Miller has this chapter in his book about how uh, he calls it centering the comment section, where like when he was working on the Jeb Bush campaign, he tried to woo Steve Bannon, who was then running Breitbart. And, um, and bring them into the fold. And it was Bannon and guys like him who decided that rather than try to tamp down the role of the commenters, it was to lean into them, to engage them fully, to bring them all in, in this sort of galvanic way, right? And so we've seen this. There's a lot of right-wing media that is basically written for the comment sections. But now the, the point, point I wanted to make was that it's jumped out of that. Fox's respect the audience was really listen to the comment sections, right? That, this was like Star Walt's text to right. Bill, Bill Salmon was, um, I'm worried that by catering to the nut jobs, we're scaring away the silent majority that, uh, that wants us to do the right thing or something like that, right? And now that's what's happening with the Republican Party. Michelle Cottle had this great piece in the New York Times yesterday or the day before um, about how Brian Kemp basically has nothing to do with the state GOP in Georgia. Right? He's the governor of the state. He says, right. don't give any money to the state GOP. Give it to my leadership pack. He's not going to speak at the state party convention, nor is the attorney general, nor is the secretary of state, nor is the insurance commissioner. Like the actual elected Republicans in the state are like, yeah, we don't want anything to do with that because the Georgia state GOP, increasingly the Michigan state GOP, they've all been taken over by the election deniers, the QAnon types, the, the, the hardcore Trumpists. Um, it's, like, it's like caddy day at the pool at Bushwood. Right. They're just all taken in. And and I think that's sort of a big it, it, as a metaphor, I think it explains a lot of the 
screwed upness of of our politics today is that nobody is moderate is doing content moderation of of the comment section. So and the commenters like run the asylum. Right. And and a lot of that was like if you if you you know I'm, I don't know about Brian Kemp. I mean sort of a definitely a governor that I admire, but if you may have gone to a Brian Kemp in the past, you know, eight years ago or something, when he was you know just starting to begin his political career or whatever, he he probably had that attitude that people have about, you know, the, the working for Trump. It's like, well, I need some of them are crazy, but you know I can handle their the the idea that smart people can control the crazy people somehow, you know, we we know how to handle it. They're very enthusiastic and passionate and we'll figure it out. Um, or you could just, I, I just look at it larger, like 60,000 feet, right? If you look at the, the country, uh, you know, we went 50 years with one party controlling the house. And then suddenly we've had, I don't know, since Gingrich, since 94 Gingrich, we've had, I don't know, I, I couldn't even count how many speakers of the house we've had. We, we legitimately say things now that we'd never said when I was growing up, which was like, I think the house is going to change sides, or I think the Senate's going to change. We never said that. House Senate changing, House Senate changing, House Senate changing constantly. Uh, the country votes for, um, you know, uh, uh, George W. H. W. Bush and then Bill Clinton. Those are kind of some Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, not a big difference. The the the, the Bush Gore campaign really wasn't about much except Medicare Part D. Um, and then suddenly Barack Obama, and then suddenly Donald Trump, and then suddenly Joe Biden, who's many ways, you know, just not Donald Trump. Um, House and Senate keep switching. And there's this, it's just volatility, right? We're entering this volatility and there's like a couple ways to interpret it. One is um, uh, the American people are insane and having a nervous breakdown. And that's what the politicians think. If you ask a politician what happened. Um, and then another way is to think that, oh, the American people are trying to get your attention. They're yanking on the leash because you're not giving them what they want because the, the there's a market failure here, uh, which is also really possible, right? Like, we don't want this you keep handing us. We want some different stuff. So we keep going crazier and crazier until you figure it out. Um, but the signal is hitting DC or the political elites is like, they want more extreme. Whereas I think what they want is they want you to start walking in the center. That's When you keep pulling the leash, it's because you're trying to get to the center. Um, or the third thing, which I think is more likely, is that just we're looking at the end of the system. Like, there's, you know, these parties don't last forever. They haven't. Maybe we're looking at the end of it. We're at the tail end of the party system. You know, it's not, it's not late stage capitalism, which people love to say. It's late stage American party system. And um, I'm not sure how that works or how, if that's going to work, but it certainly feels like the, that's what the market is saying. It's like what you're, we don't like any of these products. Yeah. Um, and, well, and, and, and it come, I was just saying, it comes at a time when people can flatter themselves that they can, they can um, slice things very thinly. So if you ask a political consultant what his ultimate goal is, it's like, I'm going to win by one vote because that's how smart I am. And that's still winning. Whereas, same thing you see in show business. Like, I, we're going to get uh, uh, 1.2 million people to tune in, which, you know, I, if I had put a show on, get 1.2 million people, they would have dragged me to the center of the courtyard and executed me, you know, Game, game, uh, game of Thrones style. But now that's considered a success, right? So now it's like, well, is it 1.3 or 1.35? What nobody's doing is saying, why aren't we going for 20? Because um, that seems hard. But you go for 20, you, you, know, you have a mandate. You can do things. A 20, you know, you, 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 that's a 20, 20 million people watch your show. That's a hit show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that's the, I mean it's like, I mean, the, the, 
the pristine example, remember that Carrie Lake, you know, she has a rally like 10 days before the governor's election. And she says, are there any McCain voters in the room? And before people can raise their hands, she says, doesn't matter. Get the hell out of here. <laughs> and it's like, first of all, neither of us are prof- political professionals, but like, I think we can both agree as a matter of logic that if you were attending a Carrie Lake rally, you are at least open to the idea of voting for. (laughs) And John McCain, who was five term Senate, popular Arizona figure, popular Arizona figure, probably the second most successful Republican politician after Barry Goldwater. And the, since world war two in Arizona, I could be open to Mm -hmm. correction about that, but ballpark. Right. Right. And like, it's no, no, no. We don't want any of you rhinos in the comment section. We don't want anybody saying, well, I don't think that if you drink your own urine, you'll be immune to COVID. We want everybody who's all in on this stuff, right? And I think that that's, that actually has been, Jonah, that's been proven. <laughs> I'm going to send you some doc. Yeah, no, you're right. That's right. And I just, yeah. Anyway, I think that, that it's, it's, um, it's just astounding to me. The Republican, so many aspects of the Republican Party would rather have 30, 40% of the electorate be true believers and vote for them and lose to the 40 to 60% of the electorate that probably doesn't really like Joe Biden very much and would like to vote. Some of whom would like to vote for a Republican, but can't vote for these nutters. And um, it's just, it's a very weird sort of logic of the comment section thing. Yeah. It's the, the idea that like, who would you rather vote for someone whose policies and politics you vehemently disagree with or someone who you think is insane. Right. It's like the difference between, you know, New York City now and New York City 1990 in terms of crime. Right. In crime, you know, you would walk around, you get mugged and somebody would rob you, take your money. Now, a crazy homeless person is going to push you in front of a train. Which one's more terrifying? Well, if you ask people who live in New York City, it's the crazy person because you can't even what on earth is this person going to push me in front of the train Um, for no reason. I can't even I can't even just throw my money in one direction and run in the other. in fact, you know, street crime like that seems quaint at this point, old-fashioned. So there's that. I think there's also this weird distortion we have now about scale. Like Americans don't seem to understand scale very much. So they tend to think that Twitter is real and that somebody who's got 10,000 or 100,000 or a million Twitter followers is somehow influential. They, they, we call them influencers, whereas there's no evidence that they influence anything. The evidence is that people like watch them, but that they influence something is... Except in their very narrow lane. So if you're Khloe Kardashian... Um, and you have a cosmetics company, then the girls who like you are going to buy your cosmetics. Uh, so you are influencing in that way. Um, but the, the, the uh, I used to say this to people like, you know, at, at his height, Tucker was getting, I don't know, maybe at his, at his, at his, his top rating was somewhere around 5 million people, maybe. And it was not usual. Mostly I think the average was about three, three and a half. Um, which is kind of what Jill Stein got you know, it's not many people, right? You think about the number of people you need to do anything. I mean, if you're running for president, general election, you need like 70 million people to do a thing for you on a day, most most of them on one day, or at least to sit down with their thing and market and send it back in. Um, that's actually, that's really hard. Uh, it, it, and it's, you're still getting 40 million people to vote for you on that day. And 40 million people are voting for the other guy too. I mean, that would be a, you know, a billion dollar movie opening. No one's ever done that in show business, but they do it in politics all the time. And people like movies. 
And people like, <laughs> yeah, that's right. They have only got like There's choo bees and milk duds and yeah, right, right. No, people that, hate so, our politicians. <laughs> absolutely. So it's a very strange, the, the, the lack of understanding of scale, the, the weirdness with people in any kind of political bubble, just not just because, not just to think, I only want to hear the news I want to hear, which I understand, but that, that there's only us here. The bubble isn't so much I'm being protected. It's that you begin to think it's only you. You've never met anybody who disagrees with you. So that seems insane to you. And, you know, when I say to, to conservatives, when I say this on the Rickshay podcast all the time, it's like, you know, uh, people, uh, people call, call me a rhino as if that's an insult. I mean, it is, but, and I am, but um, I'm the hope. You need me. You're not going to get to 51% without the rhinos. Uh, and if you, if you don't like the 51% rule, then you're in the wrong country. It, the, the, the system was designed to give you the C plus version at best of what you want. The system is designed to kind of not give you what you want, but close, but not really. You're going to get the C plus version because you're going to have to eat a bunch of shit cookies from everybody else to get there. 75% of a loaf is a huge win politics, right? That's just a huge win. Yeah. 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 And that's like, that's how, it, that's how they, that's how the founders in, in, envisioned this. And it, it kind of works. Um, it was literally Madison's point about how parties should work. And, and you know, like you get coalitions that have shared but not identical interests. And they're kind of like, if we all get together, we can get most of what we want compared to nothing of what we want if the other side wins. And so parties were supposed to like expand coalitions and get buy-in from people who were not necessarily on the same page. on this, you know? and, and, and to do that, you have to appeal to a lot of people who you disagree with just to get things done. And that, that is the system. And you, maybe you don't like it. That's fine to not like it. Um, but it is the system. So you can't pretend it isn't the system. I mean, the people who are absolutely baffled by how Donald Trump lost in 2020, it's like, well, he was an unpopular president everywhere but where you were. Well, everywhere I, you know, it's like, well, just look, you know, that if that's going to happen to Joe Biden too, I suspect. So it's funny. Um, I, I mentioned this last week on a podcast here, but um, the this bubble thing, right? It's, 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 it's the people who are most upset about Tucker losing his platform and the people most jubilant about Elon Musk selling blue check marks for eight bucks a pop. There's an enormous amount of overlap between the two. Yeah. Because there are a lot of people, particularly on this sort of NatCon kind of world who think, Twitter is the real world. It's everything, yeah. right? Yeah. And um, and they think getting on Tucker is the way you blast out to like all of America. Like all of America right. is watching Tucker. Right. Like everyone they know is watching right. Tucker, right? And right. so like, right. I, I just love this so much. Um, uh, people are going to think I'm obsessed, but Yoram Hazoni, who's like, you know, the guru of the nationalism stuff, he tweeted last week, I'm reading this, by making blue checks available to everyone, Elon Musk has initiated a democratic revolution against a ruling elite. <laughs> the blue check really was a symbol of their power. Losing it mocks their vanity and wounds their pride. And like, I got to tell you, like, like, I had a blue check. I actually, I'm actually paying for Twitter blue now, which like a lot of people think makes me like a, a Nazi or something. But uh, I'll probably get rid of it at some point. But um, 
the number of people who seem to really think that rich Hollywood types, rich journalist types who, who go home to their, who go to their beach houses or their ski, you know, their ski houses and the Georgetown cocktail party. Yeah. And they're drinking champagne out of their intern slippers or whatever. Like all of a sudden, well, that's a revealing thing to say. That all comes, well, that was sort of a Dick Morris thing. Uh, yeah, right. All comes crashing down because they lost their blue check on Twitter. It's like, no, the blue checker, the blue check was really important to you and you're projecting it yeah. onto uh, them. You know, I, I had a blue check on Twitter and I, and I, I'm, I think. I, it, it arrived one day. I had, I, and I thought it was just based on the fact that in my Twitter membership, whatever it is, your Twitter profile, not the not the public profile, but your like this, whatever your account settings, you had a, an email address and then a website that was you. So that or they a real phone find, number, yeah, so a real phone number. Some they they knew it was you. That's 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 how I got it. And then and I I still don't see the value of it, and I don't see the, what I lost when they took it away. I, I only on Twitter, I only look at the people that I follow or the people that the people that I follow retweet. And that's, I don't, I think that's, isn't that, that's how it's supposed to be. Uh, any other complication of that seems, you know, bizarre to me, but I mean, I, but the, but the idea of it and the weird kind of misunderstanding of scale and audience is like, I ha I see it now in, um, in, you know, in conservative donors, right wing donors. I mean, there's uh, there's nobody I think more useless right now than a right wing donor. Uh, you know, I'm speaking generally. Um, you know, left wing. You know, the left wing. Um, uh, the argument I use is this: is that the uh, um, very very uh, wealthy family, uh, entrepreneurial family, um, gave the money to start ProPublica. ProPublica is enormous, enormously influential um, from a left wing perspective uh, reporting operation. And it's fully funded, and they've done a pretty, really great job building that outfit. They really have. You have to give them credit. If you go to a right, a classic, typical right wing funder, and you talk about something like that, they'll or you or a, you're going to fund a book, you're going to fund this, you're going to fund that, or you're going to make videos, whatever you're going to do. Often their question is, "Yeah, can we get this on Tucker?" You're like, well, what's the point of that? Everybody on Tucker already agrees with you. The point is to talk to people who are not on Tucker. You should be saying, can we get this in the New York Times? Yeah. Or get it on NPR, which has 11 million <laughs> listeners, you know, morning right. edition or whatever. Yeah. Right. Right. And if you say that, they're like, well, why would you want to talk to you? Like, no, those are liberal. Like, those are the people you need. Like, that's, you know, you don't, the, you know, uh, when you're, you're advertising a consumer package good, you have two audiences, right? You have the people who are buying your product all the time. And so you need to reward them with coupons and end caps and, new and improved and the people who haven't tried your toothpaste you need to say better than the other toothpaste and taste better and now in a new package and um you know whatever but you have to do both those things or you don't sell your product uh, and and i just think there's a shortage of the 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 crack and the the sheer entertainment value of fox news has kind of taken over the the marketing arm of the conservative movement which um is i think going to have, you know, generation of failure because of it. All right. On that happy note, Rob Long, <laughs> yeah. thank, you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. Um, and uh, I, I should have you back sometime. You know, I'm always available, Jonah, not just for show business, but just for general chit chat. Um, we, we're we're going to try and play the Marseille or I don't know what, 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 what uh, Marseille doesn't work. What, what would we play? Oh yeah. It's gotta be one of those old, like, 
wobbly, like we shall over, we shall overcome. You're not together, united, will never be divided. Well, you know, just come to. I'll let you know when I'm picketing, and you can just come go. by and listen to the songs that we're forced to sing. That would be wonderful. All right. <laughs> Rob Long, thank you again for joining us. Happy to. Okay, so Rob has left the studio and um, uh, always good to talk to him. Um, and then again, I talk to him all the time, just not on this podcast. Um, and uh, um, again, I want to thank you know the folks who came out last night at the um, uh, Goldberg Hayes Starwalt Palooza. Um, just a great bunch of people. It was so great to hear from people who, um, for whom the dispatch means a great deal. You know, I mean, just, just talk to an enormous number of people who were grateful for what we're doing and what we've done, what we're trying to do. And, um, and yeah, I know it's like the hardcore fan base of the dispatch and of the remnant, but, um, it was still great to, it's just great to, 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 to see everybody see these people and realize that they're, we're not just putting notes in a bottle and throwing them into the ocean that, that this stuff matters to people. So, uh, thank you for all that. Thank you also to everybody who had comments about my mom, the party in New York. I'll probably talk about it a little bit on the solo podcast. Uh, it went pretty well, I think. Um, at least all the feedback I've gotten was good, but who's going to tell me, you know, Hey, the party for your deceased mother sucked. But no, I think, I think it was, it was good. And, um, and I was really very touched by all the people who came. And, um, so on the, on the, the way we're going to do this on the, the special remnant with me and Steve and Chris, um, in front of a live studio audience, um, is we're going to release the first half this week as a normal remnant. The whole thing will be up on the, on the site for paying members of the dispatch. You know, for, if you're a subscriber, you can get access to it. Uh, the whole point of, not the whole point, but a big point of this was to sort of, uh, show that to borrow a phrase, membership has its privileges and, you know, we might down the road, release the whole thing. We got a lot of video. It was fun. Uh, uh, Starwalt was in Fuego. Um, Steve was present. Um, and, uh, uh, no, but it was a really good time. And, uh, no, but it was a really fun time. And there was, you know, there was, uh, uh, drinking in, in, in appropriate moderation, uh, also, um, um, may have occurred. Um, oh, and not only did it occur, it occurred in our new, our latest, uh, wares for the, um, dispatch store. It should be available soon. I, I made the mistake of tweeting about them before they were available. And lots of people are yelling at me. We got, uh, Remnant stickers, dispatch stickers. We got a uh, remnant coffee mug with um, Zoe and Pippa on the back. We got um, some really cool uh, um, uh, scotch glasses, you know, whiskey glasses. What do you call them? High balls, low balls. Um, and a bunch of other stuff. It's very cool. Uh, check out the, the store on the dispatch. Um, that stuff should be uh, available soon. And, um, that's all I got. So thank you for listening and I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. 